0: Welcome to Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast, the show where we seek to uncover what leadership means in today's world. I'm Joe Hart, CEO of Dale Carnegie, and we'll be talking to diverse leaders with stories to tell across various industries to help unlock your potential for success. We'll be sharing real-life insights into leadership, which in turn can help spark the next level of your growth as a leader. Today, we have a guest who has a deep background in the media industry. From organizations such as Yahoo, AOL, and Huffington Post, to his most recent role as president of BuzzFeed, Greg Coleman, executive in residence at Lair Hippo, has extensive experience in leading organizations through an ever-changing business world. Greg, welcome. Fun to be here. So Greg, you've had really an incredible career and I know it's, it still continues. You've been the president of Buzzfeed and Huffington Post and you've worked at uh, Reader's Digest. Before we get into your background and really some of the lessons you'd have and things you've learned, tell us a little bit about you and some of the things in your life that were important to you as you got into your career.
1: Sure, so growing up, I was one of a very large family. So one of 12 children. And when you have that kind of environment, what does not kill you makes you stronger, and trying to navigate within that environment has many, many upsides. By the way, where were you in the birth order? Second oldest, second oldest. A lot of responsibility on your shoulders then. We did, I mean, we had a big sign as you went into my family's kitchen and the sign read, guests of guests may not bring guests. <laughs> and that kind of kept down the numbers to maybe several dozen as opposed to over a hundred. So when you're part of a large family like that, there are several dynamics that will, of course, take place and and create a basis of of who you are and how to navigate the world. But also watching my dad as a young child, these are the days where just the dad worked and the mom stayed home. My mom had lots to do at home with the, the gaggle of children. But watching my father navigate start to actually build a business. When I was about five years old, he quit his company and with two partners started a high technology manufacturing company. And we would just see him. We couldn't go out anywhere without watching him put quarters into the payphones. And he was always on, always traveling. And he was building a business. He was the first in his generation that broke through a socioeconomic barrier. And that was important for him. And as a child, I just had a seat at the table watching his moves. He didn't stop and teach me and say, this is what I did, and this is who I am, and this is who I'm talking to. You just, almost through osmosis, had the chance to watch. When I was around 10 years old, I remember we moved out to a very large house. And on the weekends, we had CEOs come over and playing football with us or swimming races with us. And they were, that's all I knew, that CEOs were regular people. Mm -hmm. And the advantages that that gave me in business as I was developing relationships and sometimes dealing with high-level executives are important, these were the guys with their bathing suits on that were hanging out at my house. It must have given you a confidence level,
0: a self-confidence, I would think, in interacting with other people.
1: Completely, but something in me just drew me in to conversations with these executives. I would ask my father lots of questions about his business, but you know back in those days having a balanced life was just not there. He was completely driven to build something and to you know, hopefully have some time to enjoy the success.
0: It sounds like even though your dad was constantly building and working so hard, that he really made an incredible impression on you. You learned a lot from your dad. What are some of the
1: things that you took from your father as you began your career? I would start with positive and negative things, two parts of it the value of personal relationships will never change. I don't care how digital we become or how robotic we become, a personal relationship in business and in life is valuable, right? Friendships and business relationships still trump many things going on out there. And and maybe years ago, you could get away with just a good relationship with with a mediocre product. Today, you need both, but you need both. And some people forget the value of a personal relationship. I remember my dad coming back from Germany, and with him, he brought 54 cuckoo clocks. This might sound crazy. And these big boxes arrived, and I'm like, Dad, what are you what did you do? We don't need we don't that many rooms. What do you need with all he said, Oh, I brought these because all of the assistance of the people that I'm doing business with, I'm sending them a cuckoo clock. They're handmade, they're beautiful. And I said, You know, but why are you doing? This? He goes, Because when I call, I want to get in to meet their boss. And and I was like, That's kind of unusual. And it was little things like that, watching Both of my parents always talked to a taxi cab driver and asked them how they were doing, how they were feeling, talking to people that were not important, also watching them treat them with the same respect as they did with a big shot. The help we had at the house, treating them with respect, and it becomes ingrained. It's It's interesting hearing you because
0: it's also a reminder for those of us who are parents, about just the impact that the small things in life that we do have on our kids. It sounds like you really noticed, you paid attention to those interactions.
1: Yeah, and it just was there every day. And if you watched somebody treat people with disrespect, I had such an uncomfortable feeling just watching people without any empathy. It was just startling, even as a, a young person. On the other side, today, it's okay to have a balanced life, to not try to build the Great Wall of China or do something dramatic. It's okay to spend more time with your family. One of the things that I also learned is when you work to excess, that there are holes that develop and deficiencies that are there. So I always needed to have more time with my dad, but also my mom was under these babies. So getting somebody's attention was difficult. When I went to first grade, I grew up with 60 children in my class with a nun teaching. So I literally learned nothing for my first while at school. And I would leave school and I would go home to my mother with all these babies and my father traveling. I was really happy. I I wasn't like this lost, forlorn, depressed child. I was like pretty happy. I was off everybody's radar screen. Nobody could keep track of me. And then ultimately going into fifth grade, they sent me to private school and the jig was up. Okay, what happened there? Well, I guess I had to learn how to read. No, I did know (laughs) how to read at that point, but it was clearly, you know, my foundation for education was it wasn't there. Nobody was checking my homework. No one was really watching me either side. But I also developed different skills, right? Much more around the interpersonal relationships that I built with friends and my friends' parents. It was I don't know how that happened, but I could always chat with my friends' parents. I was a lot of times more interested in chatting with them. But when you're presented, all of us presented with different circumstances, you have to learn how to navigate. And I was fortunate that I was just a very happy child under those circumstances. This theme
0: of relationships seems like it's coming up. It's really been an important part of your formation and clearly your success in business. Talk a little bit about about that and as you got into
1: your career.
0: Where did you start and what were some of the things that helped you accelerate in your career?
1: So my very first job, I went right from college. I went to Georgetown and went right to NYU Business School. And in between my two years of business school, we had to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. And I read a story about the publisher of Woman's Day magazine that took it from a 12-time-a-year frequency to 13 times. And I don't know why this happened, but I called his office. And it, on the day you, you appear on the front page of the journal, everybody's calling you. You just called out of the blue. Out of the blue. And I got this guy on the phone, and he asked me if I could come in the next morning. And I said, sure. His name was George Allen. He passed away several years ago. And I was telling him about what I was doing. He was asking about my background. And I said, I would love to have an internship. You don't have to pay me. Or at least that was my line at the time. I think I was always hoping he would pay me. And he reached into his file, and he took out several manila folders. And he said, take a look at these. And I looked at one and I found an interesting project on magazine distribution. And he said, okay, I need help here. Could you work with me on that? And I said, yes. When should I start? And he said, how about tomorrow? I was there for 10 years.
0: Wow. So just a call out of the blue. You start the next day and you're, you're there for 10 years.
1: It opened a door. I did know that I was interested in the world of media. And actually, if you fast forward, I was the president of Reader's Digest. I just moved my family, and we were in our house for three months, the house that we built. We didn't buy a house. We built a house. And I was on the recumbent bike in the Reader's Digest gym, and I read another story in the Wall Street Journal about the rise and fall of Yahoo!, and it was very close to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I, I read this and I needed to go there. I needed to meet somebody there. You just
0: felt this in your gut? It was I kind just of a...
1: felt, I felt it. And I felt it for one reason. The whole internet had blown up, but... What time is this? This certain? is two, the winter of 2000, right after the whole internet had the terrible breakdown. Everything fell apart except Consumers were spending more and more time reading material online, and my fundamental belief was that the advertising dollars would follow the eyeballs. That was the only compass I had. I had almost zero digital experience, and I was going to a land where they only spoke digital. But it was an adventure that was overwhelming, and it took about four months, but I was asked to come in, and my role there was to run worldwide sales. I had to move to California and it was an adventure that wild horses could not have dragged me away from. But I was really surprised that with some effort, not a lot of effort, but just a few phone calls, I was able to get a hearing and then I was hired. And you know, be careful for what you wish for. It was seven and a half years of an amazing, powerful adventure of a new world, some of the principles were the same, but going to the new world was something that I was just extremely drawn to. And then that put me on a digital track for some of the other things that I did.
0: So share a little bit about that, because in a couple things, one is this is a time of major disruption in the media space, starting at that time and moving forward, right? You talked about the major shift in terms of some of the things that were happening, but you also maintained, or you served as a leader both at Women's Day Reader's Digest, now at Yahoo. Talk a little bit about um, the people side of things and you know what happened and how did you lead? How did you
1: lead people through change? So I guess the biggest learning experience I had, and I was warned by a board member of Yahoo, who's a famous investor named Mike Moritz at Sequoia Capital. And when I went to meet with him as part of the interview process, he told me, you're not interviewing, you have the job. But I'm gonna give you some advice. And he said, five of the people that are working for you went to either Harvard Business School, Yale Law School, and in their experiences, no one has ever given them a grade in anything less than an A, maybe an A plus. And part of my job as their new manager was to be able to talk about the marvelous things that they had done. But there's also things that I'd like to see them do differently. And as much as he warned me, he could not have warned me enough because when you essentially tell somebody that uh, probably was at the head of their class from kindergarten through graduate school that there are some things that they can do to improve, it didn't go over well and I was really surprised. So the way I give performance appraisals, I do it just in two simple parts. Here are the things that you do that I like, and here are some things that you do that I'd like to see you do differently. Just a good open dialogue, balanced. And when I got to hear some of the things that you do that I'd like to see you do differently, it was really surprising. I'd never seen anything
0: what like that. the reactions like? And how the it, reactions did you
1: do? were, I can't trust you, I can't work for you. How dare you tell me that? I mean, things that I had not seen anywhere previous or since. But I think that the digital world, you had a confluence of people that were really smart and people that also were part of this new world. So they were like in a whole different stratosphere that everything they did was right and ahead of the curve and amazing. But lots of the The things that I wanted to see done differently were around how they worked as a team, the interpersonal relationships that they had either with clients or with members of my team or members across the company. And that was new. It was simply telling them, that they had work to do in some places.
0: This is interesting, what did they do? I mean, you you've presented them with this information, kindergarten through college, they've never had anyone tell them they were wrong, yeah. so to speak, and and now they're faced with, this person is an outsider, right? And, right? and who they must have assumed doesn't know as much as they do. Yeah. So what, what happened next?
1: So I, what I would describe as we went along the way, I would give them what I called gifts. Like if I saw something where I think they could learn, from, I would, I'd say, you're not going to like it, but here's a gift. And they never liked it. So what happened is one person left the company and one person really struggled and kind of broke through. The other three people really came around. But all five, I've maintained great relationships. And the person that left wrote me like two years ago to say, hey, remember that gift you gave me? I wish I embraced it, you know, a while back. And look, as a manager, you don't always see the, I I don't have 100% accuracy in my observations, but I have enough to be able to give somebody feedback where all I wanted them was to be aware of things that would take their game up. That's, that's, that was the, that was the idea, and too often in the performance appraisal process, people are relegated to filling out forms and putting numbers, your seven here or three there. I, I really dislike that. It never worked for me, but creating a way, and it, well, I didn't create this, I had a boss that created this, that two-part performance appraisal. Here are the things that you do that I like, and this is what I wanna see you do differently. And then you read it and you review it, and then the person comes back a week later to finish it. And I need to let that person that works for me know that when they leave that room, there's no other agenda. They know the 100% truth of how I'm evaluating their performance.
0: So there was that transparency. It's interesting, though, it strikes me that you really had caring for these people. You cared about them. You talked about even growing up, you know, sometimes you saw lack of empathy. It seemed like you took that empathy you, you were open with them about where they improved or needed to improve. But the fact that, that over time, even the person who left came back and said, hey, thank you. You know, I really appreciate some of what you, you taught me. Must have shown the relationship that you had built with that person or maintained, certainly over a period of time. It, it just it seems like there's more here than simply a review. You really were trying to bring up the best of these people.
1: I was. But there are two things. Remember, I'm running a business. So... In the hierarchy of things yes i care about people and i want them to grow but it's not just feel good unless they did these things differently business was going to be much more difficult Mm -hmm. how they treated their teams how they managed their teams giving feedback on that was really important so the two have to go hand in hand it can't just be an altruistic i want to make you a better person but if you can do both, build that in as well as saying there's a reason for this and a reason for you to navigate your next few jobs or your career, or your family life or whatever. That was important to me. But the, the feedback, I guess I was always used to feedback growing up and I, I would take it and I accepted it. But when people don't accept it, that was just new for me.
0: So what would you say your most proud achievement was at Yahoo!,
1: well, by the numbers, when I got there in 2000 and early 2001, we were doing 600 million dollars in ad revenue worldwide. When I left, we were doing a little over six billion. Now part of that was that the world forgave the early digital pioneers for some of the problems that had existed. but I'm quite sure that that wouldn't have happened unless the team that I had a chance to build was there. So I was in the early days. Not everybody was as crazy as I was. People were so afraid of going to the internet, going to the digital world, because that's where everybody just lost their job. Once I was there about a year, a year and a half, we started to see a little traction. People felt that the coast was a little clear and I could start to build the team. And then the more successful we got, the more people wanted to come in. And it's just such an interesting view of the world. For me, the opportunity is when it's broken. And if you have the chance to fix it, the satisfaction that you have is way high. And as I said, in the case of Yahoo, we were so big and continuing to grow, all those eyeballs watching were growing and growing, and the marketers, which was where all of our revenue came from, advertising dollars, they had to notice, and they needed to get in front of these people.
0: What did you do next, Greg? I mean, you built this hugely successful business at Yahoo. You go from $600 million to $6 billion in ad revenue. What did you do next, and what led you to leave?
1: Yeah. So one of the board members of Yahoo, his name is Eric Hippo. Eric had gone over to be the CEO of the Huffington Post. And I had made the decision to leave Yahoo in early 08. And when I did, I took some time off. I ran a global job where I was traveling and I took some time off. And at the end of the summer, I had dinner with Eric Hippo, and we were chatting, and he was three months in, and he was looking for a present in the Huffington Post. And he and I are chatting across like three other people, and I'm sitting next to his wife, and his wife, after hearing us chat for 15 minutes, she whispers, Go for it. And I'm like, What do you mean? She goes, you know what I mean, go for it. <laughs> and I, I started to smile. And then Eric and I met twice the next week and we did a deal. And that also was interesting because when I got to the Huffington Post, you had a lot of people that would say, hey, what, why are you going over to work for that left-wing political blog? It's not gonna go anywhere. I didn't know, I, I wasn't sure, but the people, right? I did an assessment, I knew Eric well, and I had the chance to get to know Ariana during this courtship period, and also Jonah Peretti, who was one of the founders, who was ultimately the founder of BuzzFeed. And we worked hard and we were like really successful. We, we got to a point where we were larger than the New York Times. And we sold to AOL almost three years after I started, and it was terrific, and those relationships, kind of stayed, and then I went to work for a French-based advertising technology company called Criteo, where I was president. And we worked hard there, and we took it public three years after I started, and it was a big success. Um, But going back to, to the point, then after I did my four years at Criteo, Jonah Peretti, who I worked with at BuzzFeed, called me one day, hey, let's have dinner. And we had dinner and we started to chat about things he was working on. I was an early advisor to him. And then the next thing I knew, we started to have that chat. So I had a theme with Eric Kippo, who I worked hard with, and there are other people along the way, but I'll just cite these two. And then Jonah, Jonah was a behind the scenes, you would call him the chief geek at BuzzFeed. He did all the technology. He figured out how to do all the social sharing and all that stuff. We just became friends. I had no plans to befriend him so that he'll hire me as president of BuzzFeed. It just was the furthest thing from my mind. We were just friends, authentic relationships. And what I mean by that is when you do things for people without ever expecting Anything in return is where the magic happens. So today you would say no quid pro quo, but when you befriend people and you do things authentically, and it's happened to me probably seven times in my career where the boomerang came back to me because I worked with people and did some things without a handout, without anything, just because, but those relationships, going back to one of the other themes, was always powerful. And the best time to, you know, one of my bosses was fired at Woman's Day magazine. Our publisher was fired. I went out to dinner with him the following week. He, he was down in the dumps talking to him. And, and then the next thing I know, he becomes president of Reader's Digest. Four months after that, I wind up over there. And I wasn't auditioning for it with him. I cared about the person, and I think they saw it. So I think today, as leaders, the lack of of tr- what I would call true authentic marketing is fairly high. It's You don't have a lot of it. It's either I'll do this, and if you do that, very transactional. So that was something that I learned along the way. It's interesting
0: though. It seems like a lot of people are discovering or rediscovering that, I mean, really being authentic I mean, it's, it's, it's a critical part of, of who we are and who we need to be if we want to be successful. I mean, people can tell if you're not authentic and, and people want to work with it. If we look at social media right now, people want authenticity in people they follow in social media.
1: You can be a good actor for only so long and then you will re- revert back to who you are. So using your strengths, using things that you believe in generally will still carry the day. It's funny, I think about,
0: you know, some of the things that Dale Carnegie taught. And, you know, you're talking about really giving honest and sincere appreciation or being honest and sincere. You weren't looking for something from someone, you're just being a a good person. When it comes to presentations, you know, what if we earned the right to talk about something that is who I am, not someone I'm trying to be, but, you know, be yourself. And it sounds like that's been a real formula for your success as you've been you, you've made good relationships, you've done good work, and and that's that's helped. very well for you.
1: Yeah, I I know it has. And it's fun to be able to do something without trying. So whatever formula of what was in my genes or what I learned growing up or it it made it easier for me. And for some people it's not that easy to do what I did, but they have their own magic. You know, I teach a class at New York University for second-year MBAs. It's called Digital Media Innovation. And I have 120 students in the class, but I do office hours for two hours before every class. Everybody gets 15 minutes. And what I have really been surprised about is that a surprising majority of the students had either worked in jobs that were unsatisfactory and really didn't do much about it, and those students that are going part-time and going to school at night, the number of really smart people that are stuck and don't know what to do, if they're in a job that is not satisfying, the lack of energy around doing something is really surprising.
0: So what does that mean? Does that mean that people aren't, aren't willing to make a change, that there's just an inertia that they have? What, what do you mean by that?
1: I think heavily inertia, and also you have students that are in their mid to late 20s where no one along the way either mentored them, nowhere did they teach, what I would call happiness and what you need to find kind of your way to being enthusiastic about what you do for a living and they they don't know there's nobody to talk to it's kind of an embarrassing thing to talk about but for whatever reason based on the class that i have set up in my office hours everybody wants to talk to me about their career in our one-on-one sessions
0: they're, they're looking for a path. Is that what it is? They're looking for advice on how do they get from here to someplace else? Right.
1: And they have 15 minutes because with 120 students, I, I just don't have the time to spend more than that. So what I have found is that roughly two-thirds of my students have been or are in jobs where they're really not happy there. And when I ask them, what have you done about it? They will come up with things like, well, you know, I'm going to graduate in a year, so I'll wait to start interviewing then. And my comment is, why are you waiting? You're going to business school. You can talk about that. No, no, I'll want to wait when I get that sheepskin in my hand. Is it a
0: fear, do you think, that's underlying this for them? Or what? what's keeping them back? Is it just not lack of knowledge?
1: It's... Deer in the headlights, it's a phenomenon that I'm really diving into more and I'm talking with the school about getting some more formal research as opposed to the research that I'm doing just by talking to my students. But they literally don't know, there's nobody pushing them, they're really not getting advice at home, they didn't have anybody mentoring them, they, they just don't know. So when I, heat, when I probe and say, well, why haven't you done something? I will get a litany of explanations that are just not good enough or really just barriers that th- they tell themselves and allows them to stay on a path where they're just not
0: that site. So Greg, let me ask you, with all these young people that you're talking with, what is the single most important piece of advice you'd give them?
1: If you are approaching that state of mind where you're not happy and not that excited about going to work and you are doing nothing about it, you have to be able to carve out a minimum of 10% of your time to actively seek opportunities that might be different. And the other piece of advice is that there is no such thing as a perfect job from the outside looking in you're gonna to have to take a chance. You're allowed to make a mistake. You can make a move and it can be perfectly sized up, but you might have a lousy boss or you might have something that, that's not right. But the thing that I know for sure, if you're in a bad position now, you have 100% accuracy that it will stay bad if you don't move. That's right. So the the downside of making a change and the odds of finding something worse than where you are are smaller. So. In, my, in the class that I teach, I will bring interesting speakers. I have people like Mark Cuban, people like Kara Swisher, Ariana Huffington, they, my friends come in and speak to the class and they all need to put their email address on the whiteboard and everybody's allowed to contact them. And the number of students that I find that are dissatisfied that have not reached out to any of these speakers, we talk about that and say, why not? It's interesting. In
0: Dale Carnegie, one of the things we talk about is, you know, emotional change plus behavior change equals performance change. And sometimes that emotional change is the thing that people struggle with. There is a there is a fear of something that holds people back. They might know what they can do, but they aren't willing to do it. I don't know if that's what you're seeing.
1: It's exactly what I'm seeing. You know, last year, one of my students shared with me that he was offered a big job at Goldman Sachs when he graduated and he was telling me how his parents thought like it was gonna be the greatest thing in the whole world. And his friend's like, wow, Goldman. And he's like, Greg, I hate finance. And I'm like, so what are you gonna do about it? And he goes, I don't know. I feel like I'm being pulled, like I have to take that job. And I said, well, I know a lot of people that get married cause the family love falls in love with the person and they kind of go down that road. This person decided not to take it, but he decided to take a job on the West Coast, working for a boss he had had a few years earlier who was building a company. And he knew he didn't like finance. And even though the world would have applauded, right, for whatever that means, a prestigious company being paid a lot of money, it was probably gonna end badly. And he did the right thing and very few people have the courage to follow at least what they think they may love, or certainly to move away from something that they don't want to do.
0: It's a great story and a great lesson, I think, for all of us. Often we've got that gut feeling and the thing that we know is the right thing to do. And, and you, more often than not, it is the right thing to do, to trust that, even though it may be courageous to do it. Who are some of the people you admire as leaders? If you think about great leaders in the world space or people you've worked for in the past, who stands out?
1: Well. I, I had the f- good fortune of working directly for several of them. The publisher of Women's Day magazine, his name was Peter Diamandis. He wound up becoming the president of the whole division that CBS owned. And the, from a leadership standpoint, what he, he was the first executive to really allow me to be me he appreciated me for what I was, and he threw gasoline on that fire, and he made me feel extremely confident. So as a leader, somebody working directly with me and inspiring me and getting me to have more confidence in myself, that was magic. Working with Terry Semel, Terry was the CEO of Warner Brothers, big shot out in Hollywood, and he came over to Yahoo the same day I did, and as a leader who also had no digital experience. And the reason I'm laughing is that when Terry arrived, he didn't do his own email. He had his three secretaries print out anything that was important, and we're like, whoa, 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 Terry, we gotta you know get you a little bit better uh, on this. But he also demonstrated how his relationships and deal making skills right so if you're a ceo or president or a regional manager you're going to have you have a job but you're always going to bring a bias to it you're going to be like for me as president of buzzfeed or huffington post i was always more of a go to market president that was that was my skill set more and to try to mute that skill set and just try to do everything equally is never a good idea So I had the chance to watch different people live it. And Terry was the personification of a deal person and that he was a deal-making CEO. It was really great to watch. Of course, Jonah Peretti at BuzzFeed, watching somebody that sees 25 chess moves ahead to, to understand, what consumer adoptions and the intersection of technology and content, what that looked like, it was just very inspiring, because I know I can't do that. So having appreciation for things people can do that you can't, or I would never even try. Um, you know, so I've had the chance to work with really great people that mattered in terms of business, and it also mattered in terms of attracting and retaining talent. It's a big deal. And some people don't like to communicate. Some executives don't do it. Terry was a decent communicator, not a great communicator, but he walked quietly with a big stick. And when he did a big deal, he didn't need to run up and get applause for it. Everybody just knew. So he could move mountains by saying just a few things.
0: That's terrific, Greg. Thank you for that. Do you have any closing thoughts or advice for the people who'd be listening to this podcast in terms of their careers or their leadership?
1: With a career... And where you're spending your time it's not okay for it to be okay it's just not and as one of my speakers in my class alexa von tobel who started a company called learnvest as she talked she goes look as far as we know this is not a dress rehearsal it is not if it's not working and you're not happy then knock it off it's just not okay and People need that message. So there are executives that have big jobs and executives, particularly those making a lot of money that make significant trade-offs, happiness trade-offs. And in return, they get currency, which can make a lot of people happy too. There's nothing wrong with that. But to do it for years or decades where they are doing something to achieve a lifestyle, it's not a lot. Well, thank you, Greg.
0: This is terrific. I mean, what I'm taking away from this last comment is, you know, life is not a dress rehearsal, so take command, right? Got to seize the moment and be courageous. And not be afraid. Thank you so much. Terrific to have you with us.
1: Thank you very much.
0: I hope you enjoyed this edition of Take Command, a Dale Carnegie podcast. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Justin D. Wright of Seaplane Armada. Please consider rating this episode and subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.